morning. It's good to see you, and it's good to know that you are with us also this morning. Welcome uh, to those of you that are watching us online. So glad that you're here. Um, I have a question. If you, like me, have ever had anyone say something to you that you knew not to be true, yeah, that happens quite frequently, And I remember when uh, he said what he did to me, I knew that what he said uh, didn't have to be true, and I certainly hoped in that moment that it never would be true. Why on earth, I stood there in the academic quad, why on earth would a Christian leader tell me when I was a brand new follower of Jesus that someday I would lose my zeal for the Lord? Why? At the time, I just couldn't make sense of that statement and why he would say such a discouraging thing to me. But now, now over 43 years later, I get it. I get it. Because too often I have seen once passionate followers of Jesus lose their zeal for Christ. It happens, doesn't it? Have you ever seen this? People lose their zeal for Christ over time. You might actually even know the temptation of applying the term Christian to your life, sort of like a label, more than a lifestyle. You might also know that temptation. So I'm hoping that um, you will receive encouragement as we dive into today's message. And in the next uh, several messages, I hope that you find them profitable. Because this week, we're diving into our third and final minor prophet as we head into the home stretch of this sermon series called Minor Prophet from the Major Prophets. What did I say? Yeah, I have said that wrong many times. Uh, Major prophet from the, yeah, okay. Major prophet from the minor prophets. Just read your notes. So we, uh, we chose Amos. We chose Habakkuk, and we chose Malachi, the book that we're going to begin to look at today, from these shorter 12 books in the Old Testament, because they represent three distinct periods in the history of God's people, and because we believe that they still have profound relevance for us today. So as you may recall, the book of Amos was written about 750 B.C., And it was God's call for repentance from Israel and surrounding nations. You might remember I drew sort of like a circle around the the nation of Israel. Um, Because of the way that they were mistreating people and not living true to their call as God's people. Sadly, we know, God's warning fell on deaf ears and hardened hearts as they often do and often still do. And as a result, the northern nation, Israel, fell to the Assyrians in 732 B.C. God had warned the southern kingdom of Judah that if they continued in their rebellious ways, that they too would experience God's judgment. And God makes this very clear in the book of Amos, and we read it. Uh, a little while ago, a couple of months ago, or a couple of weeks ago, I lose track of time. Um, And this is what we read from Amos chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is what the Lord says. This is speaking of Judah. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, 
because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. Because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed, I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. That was their warning. Habakkuk, which we just finished studying, was likely written about 150 years after Amos and about 20 years before the fulfillment of this prophetic word in Amos. So about 20 years before. For it was in 585 BC that the fortresses of Jerusalem were destroyed, including Jewish, uh, the Jewish sacred places of worship. They were ransacked by the Babylonians. This is, we've been rehearsing uh, this history. Like the Assyrians, the Babylonians took captives and held them in exile. And after about 70 years, around 515 BC, I don't expect any of you to remember any of these dates, that's okay. Um, <clears throat> but it was about 70 years um, after they were taken into exile, the king of Babylon began allowing some of the Jewish uh, exiles, at least about 50,000 of them, to return to Jerusalem so that they could begin rebuilding the temple and their livelihood in their own country. And if some of you are very familiar with this history, if you want to become more familiar, um, it's all recorded in the book of Ezra, in the book of Ezra. Uh, the one before Nehemiah. In fact, some of you might recall from Ezra that as these exiles returned and began worshiping in the rebuilt temple, a, a spiritual revival broke out. It, glorious revival broke out, resulting in widespread confession of sin, one of the key characteristics of true revival, uh, widespread uh, confession of sin, um, a reorientation to the way in which they were treating other people, and a rededication of their covenant with God. It was a true spiritual revival, um, and it was awesome. For about 50 years, a long time, about 50 years, including the years when Nehemiah was given permission to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, this revival mostly continued. Um, People were being particularly receptive to the work that God was doing among them. But even uh, within, by the end of these 50 years, you can begin to detect that um, though God used Nehemiah to help the people rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, uh, there is another wall that had some problems. And this is the proverbial wall, if you will, around the people's heart, that it was it was beginning to crumble, those, well, those walls. And there were signs that there was some uh, compromise in their spiritual integrity. So it's in this time frame, and I'm going to pop up one more time, this uh, nifty time scale here. Um, so it's in this time frame. So again, just for reminder, um, we were in Amos, and then we jumped to Habakkuk. Um, just uh, before the fall of Jerusalem in 585 B.C. And now we're all the way over into this time period, into Malachi. Again, and this is why I refer to Ezra and Nehemiah. In our Bibles, uh, they fall in a different place, but actually chronologically they fall here, Ezra and Nehemiah. 
and they were contemporaries of, of these other minor prophets, Zechariah and Malachi. So there you go. Hope I haven't put too many of you to sleep, but context is important to me and hopefully to all of us. So, um, uh, so it's about 430 BC, um, approximately, that this book, Malachi, was written. <clears throat> uh, the Jews had a new temple of worship. They had a beautiful wall protecting their city. They had freedom to live out their devotion to God. And yet, there was this growing lack of zeal in their devotion to God. And this grew to the point where God had to, once again, raise up a prophet. And this time, it was Malachi to reprimand his covenant people. We always have to remember that when God sends warnings or reprimands, he does it because of his great love. This is the reason. Um, So after nearly 150 years, God's people had finally gained what they had been praying for, relative independence from occupying nations and the hope of religious liberty and freedom. And yet... Because of their increasing lack of spiritual integrity, the spiritual wall around their hearts was breached by an enemy far greater than even the Assyrians and the Babylonians, namely their contempt for God, or put more broadly, sin but their contempt for God. And so once again, we're going to dive into a minor prophet with the hope of learning from the mistakes others have made so that we can live our lives with spiritual integrity and never-ending zeal for God. So we're going to jump into Malachi chapter 1. I'll read it. Um, And I'm going to say, I don't oftentimes say this, but of course the words are going to be up on the screen like we always always do. But the rest of my message, those words aren't necessarily going to be up there. So if you have access to a paper Bible or a digital Bible, please uh, open it up. Malachi, it's the last book in the Old Testament. It's one of those, it's probably the easiest minor prophet to find because it's the last one. And um, so I just encourage you, if you can, there should be Bibles near you. Pull it up on your phone and follow along. The, uh, the translation I'm using is the NIV, uh, but don't get thrown off by that. Many of the translations that are in the chairs are um, uh, ESV, I believe. So it's going to be slightly different, but it's the same idea. Okay, Malachi chapter 1. A prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great 
is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. Is it you priests who show contempt for my name? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is is to be feared among the nations. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I'm sure that the people that were hearing these words for the first time, I'm sure that it made a lot more sense to them than it does on first reading to us. Thank you. God, for the ways in which you always speak with clarity. And now, Holy Spirit, we are praying that you would teach us. Help us to see what we need to see. Help us to hear what we need to hear. And help us, God, to respond the way we need to respond in a way that honors you in obedience to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. I've never preached through Malachi before, so this is fun. It's uh, it's been a good discovery. This oracle, or this word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, begins beautifully with this statement. 
I have loved you, says the Lord. What a beautiful opening to a book. I have loved you, says the Lord. I wish I could just stop right there and <laughs> say, okay, we did it. But there's a little bit more. This is, this is what they should have known all along. This is what they've been told. This is what they've been taught. This has always been true. But apparently, for whatever reason, it's not what they believed. So they, re they reply, how have you loved us? And I think that it's a fair interpretation to reword that and say, oh yeah? Prove it. I think that's kind of what's going on. Oh yeah, you say you love me? Prove it. It's, it's not clear, at least to me, it's not clear from the context why they thought that God had stopped loving them. So, speculating a little bit, take that under consideration. It, it's possible that there was some residual feelings that were passed on from the previous generations that had once lived in exile in Babylon. It was 150 years ago, um, uh, it was 50 years ago, and, um, and so it's possible that, you know, there was some stories that were being told and experiences that uh, had been shared in the family, and, and these stories are coming out perhaps um, in ways that was emphasizing how difficult it was as a slave or as in exile in Babylon, how Tortures of an experience that was, um, how hard and difficult it was. And perhaps they were forgetting to tell the part of the story about the near miraculous deliverance and the way that God set that up to move on a king's heart to say, you may return. And um, perhaps that part of the story was being left out and they're just being told it was awful. And it was like God left us. And I don't even know if God cares about us. I mean, I don't know. I'm just speculating. It's a possibility. So I don't know. We don't know the root causes for why they're struggling with this. But what we do know is that they question God's love for some reason. And, and it leads to lots of problems. Lacking clarity about God's love. God replied by reminding them that they were still his chosen people. Nothing had changed about that. And that they were deeply loved and they were blessed to love and to bless others. This is what he's talking about here in these verses 2 to 5. It may not be clear upon first reading, but I think that this is uh, what God is doing. One commentary hopefully explains verses 2 to 5 this way. Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Both referenced here in these verses 2 to 5. God chose Jacob, who he later renamed Israel, to be the father of his chosen people, the Israelites. God did not choose Esau, who was also called Edom. But even Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, were in many ways blessed by God. 
And so you can read about the blessings of even Edom. Boy, say that once slowly. Um, and uh, in, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 33, and then at length in Genesis 36. So what does it mean that God hated Esau? We have to get over this speed bump. Um, what does that mean? That I thought God loves everybody. Why would God hate Esau? What on earth is going on? So it may be helpful because Jesus does this uh, in one of his teaching moments that probably also got people to like, what? What did he just say? And you probably remember Jesus was saying to his disciples, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And you're like, dang, wow, on earth, how on earth am I to apply that? So clearly, we know this. You read the passage, you take it into context, you, you take everything that Jesus has to say in context, and you realize, oh, Jesus use, is using hyperbole here. He's making a point. He's getting our attention. This is what he's doing. It's a brilliant teaching technique. You say something that is shocking. Oh. And Jesus' point is that Christians first and foremost, above anything else, are to prioritize their devotion to God and to make him alone the one they worship and live for. Yeah? Is that clear? That's very clear from Jesus' teaching. It's consistent. So then we come to this passage in um, Malachi. When we read the words love and hate, it might be tempting to understand them the way that we use them today, like human emotions. However, considering the context, God loving Jacob and hating Esau had absolutely nothing to do with human emotions of love and hate, the way that we might naturally interpret them to me. But everything to do with this, with God choosing one person and his descendants for a very specific purpose while not choosing another man and his descendants in the same way. To the best of my ability to understand it, that's what it means. You don't have to agree with me. That's why we read scripture for ourselves. It's important to keep in mind uh, why. Why would God choose one man and his descendants and not another? Why? What's going on? Why did God choose the Israelites? Does he somehow love them more than others? Genesis 12 spells it out clearly that the Lord had said to Abram, this is Genesis 12, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And this is what he says. I will make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, the Israelites were chosen. Not because God loved them more than other nations. I think that that's really important to clear up and to be clear about. 
but because he had a mission for them to make his glory known among all the nations. This is why God chose the nation of Israel. In the first chapter of Malachi, we see this mandate mentioned three times. I don't know if you caught it. We're gonna, uh, you can look at verse 5. This is one of those moments. If you have your Bible open, you can look at it. Verse 5. Even the Edomites, the ones who had become proud and rebellious um, and who endured the judgment of God, very severe judgment of God, even they would see with their own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. So even they were getting blessed by the Israelites. Verse 11, God is recorded as saying, my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations says the Lord Almighty. And again, in verse 14, God declared, for I am a great king and my name is to be feared among the nations. Our God is a global God who cares about the people of this world. And it's the reason why we do things like sponsor refugee families. God has always cared about people far and wide. And God always wants to use his people to bless others so that they too can experience his great love for them. God's intention for choosing and blessing the Israelites with his love was so that they could bless other nations with his love. So you imagine how their zeal for the Lord and his mission for them would be affected if they got a little fuzzy about, their, about God's love for them. You could just see how that could go south fast. If you're not clear about the extent of God's love for you, everything begins to spiral out of control fast. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Some people uh, struggle with believing that they are loved or that they're even lovable. Uh, Beverly, Beverly and I remember one particular time in the car back when we were dating when it became frustratingly clear to me that she still didn't believe that I loved her. <sighs> For two years... I had tried to consistently show her my love and unending devotion. But for whatever reason, she wasn't buying it. <laughs> Furthermore, as she had done before in this car, she was questioning whether or not we should continue dating. <sighs> Exasperated. I... I pulled the car over, and in the best way I could in that moment, I reiterated my love for her, including my hope that someday we would actually get married, 
<clears throat> and uh, and then I said something which maybe wasn't wise, um, but it worked. So you be the judge. I said something like, you have, until we get back to campus, <clears throat> I already know how you're judging me, <laughs> which was, it's about five miles, okay? It was five miles. That's a lot of feet. Five miles uh, to decide. You can make up your mind if you choose to love me. That's great. Choose to love me just as I love you. Or you can choose to walk away from this relationship and never look back. That's what I said. <laughs> so yesterday, Beverly was reviewing how I wrote up this story. <clears throat> and I always ask her to comment. And she ended, she wrote this. She ended uh, this story with, so 39 years later, She's glad she didn't walk away because five miles is a long walk. <laughs> yeah, I was so relieved to see the JK after that. <laughs> she then wrote, without a JK, 39 years later, we are both thankful that she chose to love me and I am too. <sighs> you. Uh, I have known Christians who have lived 10, uh, 30, even 50 years without being fully convinced of God's love for them. I've had conversations with them. For some, it's difficult to believe God loves them because of, you know, things that they've done and there's just shame, boatload of shame. God could never forgive me. Others struggle believing God loves them because they believe the lie that, for whatever reason, they are unlovable. It's awful. Still, others are never at peace about God's love for them because they feel that they're not doing enough for, them, for him. So he's never satisfied, never doing enough. Or even what I do do, I don't do it good enough. I don't do it good enough. There's more reasons why some struggle, but those are some common ones. So I'll never forget the dream that I had that really helped to give me peace about God's love for me. I believe that I've shared this, but it's been a while. It's going to be new for most of you. I, I dreamt, um, this is very difficult to explain, but I'm, I'm, I wrote it down to do my best here. I dreamt that I walked into a familiar office where God was sitting at a desk. And I remember in my dream knowing exactly what to do in that moment because apparently I had done this many times before. So I sat down in the chair opposite the side of the desk from where God was sitting. I opened up my laptop, pulled out my cell phone, and I asked God what his agenda was for me on that day. Let's get her done. My plan was to take notes, get clear about what my job was for the day, and then get to work. 
But before I even opened my computer, God stood up in this dream, making me feel a bit uncomfortable because he had never done that before. He then walked over to a side door in the office that I hadn't even noticed before, and he opened it. And as he walked through it, he gestured that he wanted me to follow him. So I began packing up my computer, my phone, and he made it clear that I wouldn't be needing them where he was leading me. So I nervously left them behind on the chair in the office. When I got to the door that he by this time had walked through, I saw a room that looked something like this. I think we're going to get a picture of it. The room looks something like that. Some of you, yeah, Harvey and Mary Lynn are saying, that's our living room. <clears throat> that's our house. Yeah, um, some of you are like, so what? It's a camp. But when you're wired like me, like that's a slice of heaven on earth right there. That's my kind of room. God knew that. It's the kind of room it was. So I followed him into this room. And when he sat down on a couch, I, of course, sat down on the couch opposite his, uh, but facing him. And just as I was beginning to get comfortable in that couch, he invited me to sit on his couch next to him. Awkwardly, I made my way over to his couch. I never made eye contact. I just remember I was looking at the floor. I was like, this is really weird. And I, but I sat down, and I, you know, before social distancing was a thing, it was a thing here. There was space between us. And um, he tapped that space and indicated that he wanted me to slide over. And so he was God, <laughs> so I did. But I uh, avoided eye contact the whole time. Uh, and I was, remember, just feeling super uncomfortable. But then, uh, but then, in this dream, he put his arm around me. And, um, and he looked down on me, uh, and, or looked across or whatever, and and I heard him say, um, Glenn, Glenn, I don't, I don't remember the voice, but Glenn, um, how are you? How are you doing? Really, how are you doing? It's just that simple. And it was at this moment that in my dream, I began to cry, began to cry, weep, um, and because it was in that, in that moment that I realized for the first time that I, to him, I was more than just a hired hand, right? I was more than just somebody who was working for him. I was his son. I was a part of his family. And I was deeply loved. And so about that time, I, you know, I woke up from the dream and I'm bawling, crying, and, um, and I realized, uh, it's true, God loves me, 
I, uh, I didn't know how to tell that story for a long time. Uh, you know, you have, sometimes you have experiences, you're not quite sure how to tell them. They're super personal, and they could be like, that's weird, uh, you're weird. <laughs> and so I didn't know how to tell that story. But then um, uh, a couple of months after that happened, I was in Ephesians, and I read this, verse 17. I think this is exactly what happened. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I think that's exactly what happened to me. This dream, I think, was a revelation from God to help me know him better and to know the extent of his love for me better. And I just wonder, you know, I wonder how many Christians could use a fresh revelation of his love for them. As I said, um, when we become uh, unclear about God's love, bad things can oftentimes happen in our lives or in the lives of others. I mentioned earlier how easy it is to imagine what happened with the Israelites when they lost sight of his love for them. But we actually don't need to imagine because this is what the book of Malachi is all about. It's spelled out. And, And it's bad. It's not good. Look at verse 6, for instance. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. Their inability to embrace God's love for them made them less able and less willing to show him honor and respect and much less inclined to fulfill their role as God's chosen people to extend his love to other nations. So God's indictment here is specifically against uh, the leaders, the priests, but clearly these leaders were not the only guilty ones. The people are indicted too. If church leaders lose their love and their zeal for the Lord, it's easy to see how this will affect their congregation. And this happens all the time, yes? When pastors or church leaders lose their zeal for God and his word, bad things happen fast. Yeah, unfortunately. This is another reason Um, I'm just using this as an opportunity to emphasize why it's so important to pray for your church leaders. I'm just one of many church leaders that we are gifted with here at New Hope. And why it's important for us to pray for them and to encourage them in Christ and to make every effort to encourage them in their labor of love. I don't know of a single church leader here who would refuse more prayer. I've never said, like, no, no more prayer. I've never met a church leader here who doesn't need more encouragement. Like, no, I'm good. Don't encourage me anymore. Fine. (laughs) Nope. There's always sort of a lack. And I know that that's not just church leaders. There's a lack within all of us. We could all use more encouragement. Yes? Yeah. 
And we could all use more prayer. And this is why we gather. We don't gather to talk about the weather. We gather to encourage one another, to build one another up, because it's not easy remaining zealous for the Lord. There's a lot of resistance. The world, the flesh, and the devil. As we see in this first chapter of Malachi, yeah, bad things do happen. The priests and the people that they were leading, uh, they developed a pattern of dishonoring and respecting God, even in their acts of worship. It's shameless dishonoring. It's not just private stuff. It's in the public. This is how bad things have gotten. <clears throat> Four times in just this chapter, the word contempt or contemptible appears, making clear both the condition of their hearts and the heart of the problem, as I said previously. To show contempt for something or someone, or to believe that something or someone is contemptible, is to believe that somehow you are better than that something or that someone. Their contempt for God led them to believe that giving God their best in worship was beneath them. They felt it was inconvenient. They felt it was overburdensome. Oh, once a week, Sunday mornings, or whatever, you know, whatever. Oh, read the Bible for 20, 10 minutes, or oh, pray for, yeah, they're a burdensome, hard, inconvenient. And these people got to the point where they just felt it was unnecessary. And so their contempt for God as it so often does, led them to being content with offering to God not their very best as he deserves, but their very least. God used Malachi to warn the people of God that what they were doing was not right. And this book, this book is also a really good word for us, for you and me, and for the church in our day, imploring us to gain clarity about his love for us and to respond zealously to his love in worship to him and in witness of him to those around us in Jesus' name. So as I begin to wrap up this um, message, and we prepare to once again come to the table to receive the grace and the mercy of God through Christ and be reminded of his love for us and reminded of his love for the world. Um, I'm going to offer a few final thoughts. First, the truest thing about you is that you are deeply loved by God. Nothing is more true than that. Believe that. Believe that. And you will grow and develop into a person who's more at peace with yourself and with God. And more freely able to share his love with others. When we lose sight of his love, bad things happen. <clears throat> Maybe that's what you're going to get from this message. Bad things happen when we lose sight of God's love. 
But good things happen for us and those around us when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the one who loved us enough to give his life up for us. Yes? Yeah, good things happen. Second, if you struggle believing that God loves you, you can ask God to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. You can ask God to do this. Maybe it'll be in the form of a weird dream. Maybe he'll bring you to a passage of scripture that will just come alive for you. This is what happened for Beverly years ago. She was just reading scripture, and suddenly the truth of what she was reading sank in in a way that it hadn't yet. It could be scripture. It might be a prayer time. And I would want to invite anybody that's struggling for whatever reason with really believing that God loves you, come on down, and we'll be very happy to pray for you uh, after this service. Third, Knowing that many Christians, including some church leaders, struggle with being convinced of God's love for them. Can you think of some people this week that maybe you could pray for? Maybe you could encourage anybody come to mind. Anybody come to mind. (laughs) Just stating the obvious. I would love your prayers. I would love words of encouragement as I also pray for you and try to encourage you. Prayer, uh, a little bit of prayer, a little bit of encouragement, I'm telling you, make a huge difference. Huge difference in somebody's day and somebody's attitude as they strive toward honoring God with their very best. Finally, finally, if the Holy Spirit reveals any contempt, any contempt, somehow you're better You're better than God. You're better than God's people. You're better than the Bible. You already know everything there is. If there's any contempt, I don't need to give him my very best. He'll do whatever I give him. Any contempt. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, confess it. Get rid of it. Confess it. Repent of it. Get rid of it. Ask him to change your attitude. So that your heart, your attitude, so that once again you can respond with, with zeal to his perfect love and offer back to him uh, your very best in worship. Yes? That's the, that's the Holy Spirit's work. All right. So imagine, imagine with me, imagine with me the church, the church around the world, all Two and a half, three billion of us, a lot of people. Imagine the church around the world filled with men and women, young people, old people, offering God the respect and honor only he deserves by zealously giving him the very best of our lives in worship. We have been loved and chosen for this reason. And we, as God's people, 
get to lean into his love and we get to faithfully fulfill this responsibility entrusted to us to share his love with others. I believe that if the church, us, and our sisters and our brothers around the world, if we respond to God in this way, verse 11, chapter 1 of Malachi, I believe we could see the fulfillment of this in ways that we haven't yet. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, true worship, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. May it be so in our day In Jesus' name, amen, amen.